Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? It's very important to have this global approach and for MDBs to work together with the country on the policy and then the financing of projects. The Paris Climate Agreement is an agreement between countries. But it's also much more than that. It's a call to action for leaders and institutions across society to take a hard look at what they might be doing to contribute to climate change and what they can do to be part of the solution. You don't have to look any further than COP28, which saw a record number of attendees from across the globe, to see that these annual conferences have become a center of gravity for people trying to align themselves and their organizations with climate action. For multilateral development banks, Paris alignment has become a rallying cry and an explicit commitment. But now these institutions that are at the center of the climate finance puzzle have to figure out what it really means to align their operations, their strategies, and their balance sheets with the goals of the Paris Agreement. My colleague Adva Saldinger spoke with Odile Renault-Besso, who's the president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, during our DevEx Climate Plus event on the sidelines of COP28 in Dubai. This episode was recorded live with questions submitted from our online audience. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this live recording of DevEx's Climate Plus podcast. My name is Adva Saldinger, and I'm joined by Odile Renaud-Basso, who's the president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Odile, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for the invitation. I want to start by talking about your climate priorities. We've seen a lot of announcements at COP28 from multilateral development banks talking about their climate plans and ways they might work together. What have been your priorities this week and what are your priorities coming out of COP? How are you as an institution looking to align with the Paris climate goals? So EBRD has very clear climate priorities. The first one is an objective we set uh, already a few, few years ago um, in 2020, which was even 2019, sorry, which is to have 50% of our investment in the green sector uh, to support the green transition by 2025. And we already reached that objective two years ago, and we are we remain at this uh, level very likely in uh, 2023. So this is 50% of our investment in support of the green transi- transition, and the bulk of it is to support finance for climate. The second very important um, policy tool we have, an objective we have, is since the beginning of this year to have to ensure that all our investments are Paris aligned. So we look at each and every project and we check that, that they are consistent with the objective of Paris Agreement, so the objective of uh, the 1.5 degrees. And it means that we look at every project with two sort of lenses. The first one is uh, adaptation, so ensuring, looking at our investment and saying whether they can stand for um, increase of temperature of uh, 1.5. And the other thing is mitigation, how they contribute or whether they are consistent with the objective of reducing the gas uh, the gas emission. So this is something we implement in all our projects. We are the first MDB uh, 
implementing it on all our investment, and but we work on the basis of a common methodology among MDBs. So for the COP, our um, objective were, were really to make further progress on the delivery uh, and on working with, with our countries of operation in order to accelerate what I mean, how they can reduce um, gas emission, improve the energy efficiency of the economies uh, and so forth. And working, doing that at our level as a multilateral development with our countries of operation, but also with our um, partner bank, the other MDBs and working in uh, with MDBs as a system. One of the big uh, deliverable for us was really this work we do on country platform, um, because we believe that for to deal with climate and and to to deal with the green transition, it's very important to go beyond a project by project approach. Uh, this is a huge challenge. Being able to um, to address this challenge implies to have very global policies, encompassing policies, uh, be it on the energy strategy, but also on um, um, sectoral development and so forth. So it's very important to have this global approach and for MDBs to work together with the country on the policy and then the financing of projects. I want to talk, ask a little bit more about delivery because um, EIB President Werner Hoyer earlier this week said it's time for MDBs to actually step up the action. And, and I think that's one of the questions a lot of people have coming out of an event like COP. There have been a lot of announcements, and maybe we can talk about some of those uh, a little bit later, but I, I think people aren't necessarily seeing the action following up on some of these commitments and announcements. So what does delivery mean at EBRD? How does that make projects look different? How does that change your operations? So delivery means really for us implementing what we have committed to do and working with the countries which, in which we invest in order to accompany them really in this green transition. I will take one example of what I consider as delivery. Last year, we launched with Egypt um, in COP27, in Charmeshar, a big uh, program which is called NUEFE, so the Nexus for Water, Energy and Food. Uh, in Egypt, which is a country platform led by Egypt uh, with a strong commitment from uh, Egyptian authorities and which defines a very clear strategy on energy on food and on water. We were in charge of the energy, EBRD was in charge of the, is in charge of the energy pillar. And we worked very heavily with the government in order to define the strategy and then to implement it. What is the strategy? It's very simple. Energy, um, Egypt now is uh, using and, and producing electricity using gas and they have in a very inefficient manner. So they have inefficient gas fired power plant. The, we managed to convince the government that it was in their interest to decommission this inefficient gas power plant, which are very, I mean, highly polluting and so forth. In order, it gives them the capacity to export this gas. Egypt needs a lot of foreign exchange revenues and need export revenues. So this will help the, the country in macroeconomic terms. And Egypt has also a huge potential in renewable. They have a huge space for solar, for wind energy, and so forth. So the plan is to decommission five gigawatt of gas power plant and to invest in 10 gigawatt of renewable. To do that, um, Egypt needs also to, so to accompany the closing up and, and the phasing out of, of the gas for this power plant in a just transition. So to help the people working there to find something else, to be reskilled and so forth. This is a very important component. The second component where Egypt needs some concessional financing is to um, finance a grid to have 10 gigawatts of renewable and to put it in the energy sector, you need to have grid connection and so forth. And this is quite important investment at public sector level. So to do that, we brought donor support from Germany. They financed with a debt swap. They provided concessional financing from uh, US, from France, from the EU Commission and other partners, 500 million of concessional financing. Then we believe the financing of the, um, of the renewable will be done by 
including private sector, IFIs like us, IFC, 10 billion of investment are expected. And so this was the plan announced last year. This year, we already um, have a clear investment plan for the grid. So it's now defined by the energy minister with a clear plan. We have invested already 1.4 to support 1.8 gigawatt of renewable. And the first two power plants, um, uh, gas power plants will be closed in the first quarter of 2014. So this is what I call delivery. And I mean, and it's very concrete, it's a plan, a strategy, and then we implement it with financing, but also with uh, policy support. Another example I can give is the work we've been doing with North Macedonia. North Macedonia has announced in the COP uh, just energy transition initiative platform, uh, investment platform. North Macedonia has just committed to um, close all its coal power plants. And coal represents 40%, a bit more than 40% of the energy supply in, um, in uh, the electricity supply, sorry, in, um, in uh, North Macedonia. It will be closed by 2030. It's a loss of job for 6,000 6, people. So this will have to be uh, supported. There are also uh, reskilling, retraining, and so forth. And 1.7 or 1.8 gigawatt of renewable will be developed. So the strategy is clearly endorsed. We will get some financing with concessional support from uh, the Green Climate Fund. And then, um, and then we will finance and with others um, the development of renewable and so forth. So I think that. What for me, that's what means implementation and, and the role MDB can play because we have this big, big convening power where we can help the government in defining plans, bring donors funding for the or green funds, uh, international, I mean, either the climate investment fund or the green climate fund in order to provide concessional financing and then use our own balance sheet in order to, um, to finance the project. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that because we did see, um, you know, a joint statement from the MDBs uh, and we have seen a number of other sort of smaller groupings of MDBs make commitments and announcements to work together. Um, I, I'm curious how that is operationally working differently, um, because I think they've often said, yeah, we should work better together. But is that actually changing? Are you adopting the same metrics, the same due diligence processes to make things more streamlined? Are you adopting or sharing country strategies so you avoid duplication of efforts and align better with government priorities and, and sort of, you know, work off of a similar playbook so you're not competing with one another or uh, duplicating efforts with what really is limited pool of capital? So first of all, there is, in particular, on the climate green um, area, a lot of cooperation on method, uh, among MDBs about methodology. And this is, you know, we have a common approach to Paris alignment. We have a common approach to climate measuring, climate financing. We have uh, now agreed on common principles for nature, um, nature positive investment. So all this is very important in order of, of having same sort of approach and, and common principle, but this is not enough. And um, I, I believe that there are two areas where we really need really to go beyond. First of all, first of all is this country platform approach where you have a sort of lead institution doing the policy work and then the others investing together, for example, on Egypt, uh, on the investment of renewable, IFC had project, but they are all related to the same platform. So different institutions then can, we, we have, we can use the different balance sheet in order to invest, but based on the same sort of program, which is very much led by the country. The second element is the point you were mentioning on standards and uh, mutual reliance. And this is an area you may have seen that appears to be one of the priority among MDBs to work on that. Um, I mean, and to explore, I mean, either to have more common standards or to have to use more mutual reliance, which is having a lead institution. Um, and, and then if you if we are doing some co-financing, rely on the application of their standards. 
we are not starting from scratch. We already have this concept of lead institution, having, for example, joint studies on all the environmental and social impact studies. We have often one set of studies, but still we may have different approach to these studies. So mutual reliance would be a step forward. It cannot be necessarily applied um, I mean, for with everybody, because we have different business models, but we will try to do our best. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. I wanted to talk a little bit about the draft energy sector policy that EBRD released earlier this year. I want to sort of understand where where things stand with that. And and one of the things that um, you talk about in that policy is phasing out fossil fuels. Um, And I'm curious, what does that timeline look like? And, you know, what what happens if EBRD sort of stops all investments in, in fossil fuels? So the energy strategy is going to be approved next week. So it's still in the making. We had consultation, but now it's really in the final phase. And the clear objective is to support the green transition. So this is the overwhelming objective of the, the energy strategy to accompany the green transition through massive investment in renewable. And I think on that, I, I, I can come back to that later, but we, we really, on this activity, bring together policy work, so working with government on how to... Um, get the best price, how to structure the development of renewable in the most effective manner. And we've been working with 14 countries to develop an auction framework. So, so that because we are really we are really convinced, and this is also supported by evidence, that this is the best way to get the best price of electricity. And so we are working with them, I mean, in the different, um, very different countries in order to set what is a, the regulatory framework, a legal framework in order to get that up and running. And we finance uh, afterwards, I mean, the next step is to finance a project, but also of others could also finance projects. So this is important to create a pipeline of investable project and, um, and renewable can also be a, a I mean, not way of interest for private investment because the developers are private and they can have access to private funding. The second big element is, of course, developing alternative source of um, beyond renewable, sustainable uh, gas and sustainable as like hydrogen, biofuel and so forth. I guess on that on that question, Right, people have been talking about green hydrogen. I'm curious how viable you think that is as an option in the potential energy mix going forward. It seems like it may be, you know, years down the road, especially for the sort of lowest income countries, for that to be to be viable. Where do you think things stand? No, I think it has a very important potential. It's still expensive, and uh, we are still at the early stage of developing uh, green hydrogen. But uh, but there is really, I think it will it will have a very important role to play for the hot water sector and so forth. So it it will be needed in the in the in the future. And you see already a number of private investors very much interested into and investing developing concrete 
concrete project with hydrogen and, and a number of countries very much interested um, in particular for, for it to be um, one key condition for it to work is to have a lot I mean cheap renewable energy um, available so that's why it's a it's a very important potential I think for all for example some I mean South Mediterranean countries um, Morocco uh, countries like Egypt uh, are very I mean Mauritania have a strong interest into that kind of um, investment because of the potential in terms of cheap renewable and then I think it's still I mean we we, we, like, we are expecting development it's a bit like the renewable at the beginning it was much more expensive much more challenging and then you know with the need you scale up you you I mean, there are some technological uh, improvement, and um, and then it becomes uh, very very efficient. So we are very confident. We are looking into that. We are helping countries to define their um, hydrogen strategies. That's the case for Egypt, and working on concrete project in a pilot project in Egypt, for example, in this area. I wanted to ask about on the on the question of yeah, fossil fuel. We can go back to yeah yeah. We go are ahead. um we are we are already. Um, had a fossil fuel strategy which uh, exclude our uh, any investment from EBRD in upstream um, upstream uh, fossil fuel, be it oil and gas, uh, and is very restrictive on what we can do in um, in midstream and the use of gas. So to be um, and now the the condition the conditions are very for us to be able to do a project in this area very stringent in the sense that we need to show that it's Paris aligned so that and we, that we will not create stranded assets and we will also and that's um, an additional requirement uh, moving forward we will also have to show that our investment in a gas related project is helpful has a positive impact accelerate the green transition I will take you we have in the last two years financed only two projects having a connection with gas, I mean, involving gas. The first one is um, an investment in district heating in Almaty, so Central Asia. Um, and uh, it's a very cold um, city. So and now they have a highly polluting um, coal power system. So extremely, I mean, you go in Almaty in winter, you feel and you see the air, it's, it's terrible. And it's very difficult for district heating in such an area to have something else than gas. So we financed, we supported the transition from coal to gas in the, for the district heating. And um, this has allowed to reduce 50% of the pollution uh, related to, to improve substantially the air quality, improve health condition and reduce uh, emission. So this is the kind of project that, that we will still have the capacity to um, to support, but very on a sort of exceptional basis, very targeted. But what we are trying to do on the other side is really to help our countries to get out of coal. And uh, I mentioned the, the example of North Macedonia. We have another uh, project in Morocco with um, the energy um, company Oni, where we. And we provide them some liquidity support because of the, I mean, they need some um, refinancing for their debt and so forth, but with very clear condition about acceleration of the calling, the phasing out of some coal uh, power plant. And um, in relation to this project, um, we worked with the Moroccan government on the, their net zero announcement. So the government announced a net zero target in in um, in the in the COP. Um, so this is the kind of approach we, we really want to have and to deploy. And we are working in our in countries which are still very dependent on coal. For example, in the Western Balkan, which is a region where we operate still, I mean, seventy percent of of, um, of the energy co comes from fossil fuel. So, there is a lot of work to do, uh, but we are very I mean, committed to do that and to take into account each situation and find the appropriate solution to accelerate. Do you see a timeline or a point in time down the road that EBRD makes no fossil fuel related investments and, and how soon or how quickly do you think you get there? I mean, it's what we need, what is not, what is important is not so much what we do, but what our, how we can best help our countries to get out of fossil fuel because and and um, and that's why the point you know I was saying we do 400 projects per year 
So 800 projects over two years, and we had two projects involving fossil fuel. So I think that we need to put, it's, it's already extremely marginal. The context. Sorry? It's... The context is important. Yeah, but I think that what is really important is to have the tools, also very, very relevant tools, in order to help our countries getting out of it. And, um, and that's why, um, that's why I mean, we, we have this approach, which is uh, very ambitious, but also uh, taking the situation country by country and finding the appropriate solution. One important dimension, for example, we, have, we will have a strong focus on methane, you know, the methane pledge, and we were very happy that Kazakhstan, and we worked a lot with them for that, announced that they joined the methane pledge. Methane emission in Kazakhstan represents almost 20% of their gas emission. So it's a huge, huge contribution. And uh, it's, I mean, we would not exclude to finance I mean, project that will have as an impact to reduce this methane uh, emission. I think that would make sense. I mean, the bottom line is what is really important is what the countries are doing. Yeah. We talked a little bit about green hydrogen, but I want to talk about another um, type of energy that is often, I think, a bit controversial, um, which is nuclear energy. Um, and, and we saw, you know, I think 20 plus countries come together with in a declaration at COP to triple nuclear energy. Um, and, it, and, and that declaration actually included language that encourages the World Bank and other MDBs and, and international financial institutions to include nuclear in their lending. And so I'm curious if EBRD will do that? Is that something that you're discussing or considering is investing in nuclear energy? So EBRD has always been investing in nuclear, but for the safety dimension, the decommissioning and the safety. You know that we uh, we were the MDB implementing the um, shelter on Chernobyl. So it was a huge endeavor um, with a huge amount of financing. So we have technical expertise on uh, financing decommissioning and, and this kind of safety measures. Um, now we are working with some countries in, uh, for example, Kazakhstan to, to deal with these decommissioning uh, issues and management of um, of uh, fossil fuel material and so forth to be I mean, in, in, when you close uh, these kind of uh, facilities. We have had in our board in the discussion of, of the um, energy strategy some exchange because of course there are some countries which are uh, supporting uh, willing MDBs to invest. Our, um, our situation is the following. I mean, our tools and financial um, uh, specificities, because we are a, a bank which is mainly focusing on the private sector, with 75% of our focus in the private sector, uh, our assessment is that we are not the right tool to finance a very large um, nuclear project costing several billions and uh, which are much very sovereign nature with a very long-term financing needs. So this is not really, our, we are not the relevant institution to do that. Um, what shareholders decided, however, I mean, it's to be discussed in, uh, to be uh, confirmed in the, in the next, um, in the next, when they approve the final strategy, is that we will monitor the development of the nuclear uh, energy sector and see whether then, and we, 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 we are in touch with close, we work closely with the um, um, Atomic Energy Agency, for example, I met Mr. Grossi in, in COP, so to monitor what are the development, for example, for SMR, what's going on, whether this is more, I mean, something which could be relevant for MDBs, but this is, I mean, the only, I mean, for the time being, where we stand. Thanks. Um, you talked about this earlier, about how you're sort of taking a an approach that goes well beyond your energy sector strategy and really incorporating um, sort of Paris alignment and climate targets throughout all of your projects. And I wanted to talk a, a little bit more about what that looks like, because you do a lot of infrastructure projects, right? You fund a lot of infrastructure, um, and that can have often a big carbon footprint. You know, we know carbon footprint associated with cement and steel and all the, you know, all the components that often go into infrastructure projects. And so I'm curious what that looks like um, as you're sort of thinking through um, the sort of how do you build infrastructure that will be adaptable? How do you ensure that um, you're sort of reducing the emissions of the work that, that you are doing. Is that um, clauses in the contract? Is that 
in the investment process, you know, decision-making process? How is that evaluated um, and, and how are you putting that into practice sort of in other sectors outside of energy? Um, so it's, it's, a bun- I mean, it's, a, it's a complex assessment, taking into account a number of factors. Also, because what makes it complex is that we are not, the objective is not to be net zero today, but to have a, tra- a, tra- a trajectory that brings us to um, a situation compatible with, um, with the Paris Agreement. So we, as I was saying, we look at two dimensions for infrastructure adaptation. So to be sure, I mean, to, to, to see whether to check that the plans are taking into account the climate risk, uh, flood risk, or dro- I mean, um, whatever nature of drought and, and so forth. So this more technical assessment about uh, and, and the impact of taking that into account. Um, I think it's to increase uh, sometimes the cost of the project, so to have some solution proof for the evolution of of the climate. And the second point is looking whether the the investment is is compatible with the objective of reducing uh, carbon emissions and so forth. And then we look very much, we, we take the project per se, but also it's positioning into the country strategy because it's it's um, it needs to be you know developing countries for example they need to um, be able to develop some more if you have they need to have infrastructure uh, we try to support as much as possible clean infrastructure for example looking at uh, uh, ensuring that if uh, road is built it's compatible with uh, ev vehicle may have e- charging uh, impl- in- integrated already um, the best solution or, or we will focus more on rail for example than on road or and and looking into the role of the this investment into the country strategy as a role and compatibility with a national determined contribution um, and so forth. So it's it's quite a complex process. There is an element of judgment. It's very, it's not, you know, uh, you always have, have to make assumption and, and ju- make a judgment call. But uh, this is what we are we are doing. We are we have dedicated teams looking at each and every project with this sort of analysis. One of the things I wanted and to then, ask and you. If, if I may be looking beyond infrastructure and beyond project by project, what we are trying to do also is uh, bringing, for example, we work a lot with financial institutions. So one third of our financing goes to banks in the countries in which we invest. And we are really trying to, we are really working with these banks in order to ensure that them, themselves take into account this green transition objective as a core of their mandate. So we have some sort of programs to enhance their governance, to ensure that they themselves define the objective of Paris uh, alignment and implement that in their own objective governance structure, incentive and, and so forth. So this has a, a very transformational element because it's not only our money, which has an impact, but it's also the way we involve partners in this in this respect, and we try to do that also in the manufacturing sector. Right, and, and in fact, we we saw an announcement um, earlier at COP with um, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero and, and a number of other partners looking to sort of improve that technical assistance. Um, space for financial institutions, um, particularly in low-income countries, so that those financial institutions can, you know, better access the, you know, types of technical assistance that you're providing, that others are providing, so they understand where to go for the types of um, skills or trainings that, that that they need to be able to be more Paris aligned, to be more climate smart in their investments. So I thought that was, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes, but an interesting development that clearly is something that seems like you're, you're aligned with and thinking about as well. Yes, and what, what so exactly, that's exactly what we are trying to do. And also, we have some green credit lines, which uh, we distribute through the banks. And so the bank provides a credit and um, we provide technical assistance in order to help SMEs to take this dimension into account. Because what we realize, and I've seen some studies uh, we've been doing on uh, our countries of operation is that 
the awareness and the capacities of SMEs in uh, less advanced countries or middle income countries to take into account that is extremely, is, is, is relatively low. So we really need to accelerate if you want to have an impact Really, really impact you need you know to ensure that at all levels this is taken into account in the investment choice in the decision um, uh, with the clients and so we we developed this green credit line it's it's a form of blended finance because we got grant money to do that and uh, sometimes we also manage to uh, create an incentive for the clients with a lower interest rate so that they invest in green and also have the tools in order to choose the best solution, know how to go about it. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, which has been discussed, and you know, a number of MDBs have sort of adopted is this idea of a sort of climate related debt pause uh, clause in their contract. So the idea being that if a country suffers, um, you know, a negative climate event that their uh, loans coming from an MDB would be paused as they look to recover from that. And I'm curious, uh, I think EBRD has said that this is something that you're going to do. And I'm curious, what is what will that look like? Will it be in every, you know, contract? Is it, you know, apply across the board? Is it only to the principal? Is it also to the interest payment? I think people have a lot of questions about how how these um, sort of debt clause pauses might might work. So first of all, because we have 70% of our activity in the private sector, and for the private sector, our private clients, we were we already had a lot of flexibility in order to adjust whenever there is they have been affected by external catastrophe. I mean, whatever it and we applied that, of course, very uh, I mean very importantly in COVID, which is not a I mean, climate-related event, but which was a big event for, for everybody. Uh, and But we also apply it when there is a drought, I mean, or a flood, um, a earthquake, and, and uh, this kind of disaster, which may have an impact on, on the region. So we provide um, very easily, uh, I mean, postponing, restructuring, um, um, New, new money, um, so tools in order to uh, all kind of, of measure that allows the client to, I mean, get ahead and, and have some breathing space in order to deal with the, with the challenge. It was much more challenging and not applied before for the public sector, the sovereign, um, because of the MDB preferred credit status and so forth. But there have been a lot of work being done by different MDBs on that. And so now we announce that we will apply also for our sovereign and public non-sovereign, so municipalities, uh, local local client, uh, state-owned enterprise, this kind of um, automatic um, debt suspension and, and um, postponement for uh, in relation with um, uh, an event, um, natural disaster, it has to be qualified by the, the authorities as a substantial national disaster. So it can be local, but it needs to be recognized as a very important um, event with sufficient uh, um, impact, I mean, sufficient uh, serious gravitas, gravity. And um, and we will apply that to new law on an automatic basis. It would give um, 
two years um, postponement of the repayment. Um, and we will start applying because we need to change the contract and so forth at mid-year, mid-2024. So um, we believe that this is an important step to, um, I mean, can be helpful for uh, for the countries or the municipalities or uh, state-owned clients, and um, and we will see we will also see what the others are doing and and stand ready to I mean to see whether this is um, this is how it's working and, and so forth. So we we'll monitor uh, the situation. We are not in a to be fair. I mean, everybody will be. I mean, it's likely to be affected by uh, some uh, natural disaster. We are not, um, our region is a bit less uh, prone to that, but we still see some, I mean, we've seen a lot of earthquake, of course, not related to climate, but still having a huge impact and floods uh, and drought are, are a risk for our regions. Great. Um, turning to the sort of, you know, I mean, you, you've mentioned a few times that 70% of your work is, is in in the private sector side. Um, and obviously a key discussion at COP is really about private capital mobilization. And I think, um, you know, I've been writing about development finance for about a decade now. And I think that there are, um, you know, some legitimate criticisms that MDBs are not doing enough to um, mobilize private capital, that they're not mobilizing enough, that sometimes they're mobilizing each other <laughs> rather than private um, investors to come to the table. And so I, I'm curious how you think that MDBs can change that. Do you need to adjust your risk appetite? Do you need to provide more de-risking instruments? Is it a policy problem, an instrument problem? You know, where do you think MDBs should be focusing their efforts? Is it sort of upstream project pipeline creation? Is it, um, you know, creating the enabling environment, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious what you think can really unlock this. I think it's a, it's a really big question a lot of people are grappling with, and I'd be curious your take on, on what it'll actually take, especially in low-income countries to get, um, or lower-middle-income countries to get the private sector in, involved um, in climate investing, because I think there is often an appetite there, but a disconnect. So I think you said it all. I think we need to do, it's a multi-dimensional multi objective. Um, it's uh, the first thing we can do to facilitate private sector investment in emerging and developing countries is to work on the business environment to ensure that um, the, the, in, the investment um, uh, climate is attractive and uh, that there are investment opportunities. So working on the pipeline, working also on the policies. I mean, if the gov a government has a clear policy, um, clear strategy, for example, to develop renewable, or this gives some signal for investors that, I mean, and confidence in the fact that this will be, um, and you know, the credibility of the plan is absolutely clear to create this kind of confidence and investment appetite. So global environment, rule of law, everything related to rule of law, implementation of contracts, uh, quality of the environment is absolutely fundamental. And this is key in the work we are doing. The second thing is project preparation, pipeline of project. And that's why uh, I believe this country platform is so important because also it gives visibility and it gives really a strategy to prepare project. And the third element is uh, financing, how to bring more private sector. And on that, there is one not single solution. Um, and it's important to also uh, for the private sector to have realistic, um, realistic expectation. Very often you hear some I mean, large international banks saying, we would like to do this kind of investment. We have trillions to invest, but we want only in, um, investment grade. We cannot invest in non-investment grade bonds. And I don't think that it's realistic that there could be massive guarantees in order to bring I mean, low-rated countries to investment grade through MDB balance sheet. I don't. I think that's. I mean, very unlikely. But there are a lot of things that can be done because there are investors with different risk appetite. For example, we are working with um, 
with uh, ILX, which is um, creating a link between pension funds, um, which are long-term um, um, invest, uh, long-term investment uh, perspective, um, managing pension of people who wants to have a sustainable ESG dimension in the investment. And so this fund is doing the go-between between MDBs and, um, and a pension fund. And there is some appetite to invest in parallel with MDBs in what is called belongs uh, in order to, um, you know, at with scale consistent with the overall risk appetite and so forth, but in order to uh, bring this ESG dimension. And so that's one thing we are developing. We are also working with insurance companies on unfunded risk participation in order they have some appetite to take some risk and cover part of a risk so that we can learn more and be covered for a part uh, with some uh, risk insurance companies. We are also working on innovative blending instruments using a donor fund. For example, uh, we have signed a project with um, Germany where they provide us um, 30 or 40 million of grants. And this will allow us to provide the first loss guarantee for um, private sector investment willing to... Um, so we are working on all this kind of um, initiative. The big challenge, I will be... Uh, uh, honest, I mean, it's how to scale that up and how to find the right match. Uh, but but I think we, we see that as a key priority. We, we are not starting from nowhere. Our When we look at our mobilization um, ratio, and this appears, for example, in, in the MDB report on climate finance, for EBRD, for each euro invested, we mobilize directly or indirectly 1.5 euros of private investment. So it's not it's more than double x it's it's, it's a 1.5 for so it's quite significant uh, and it has been improving um, regularly but i mean this remains of course the big challenge how to bring more private investors into developing countries and we are exploring we are also working with mega on solutions so there is no one size fits all. I think it depends also on the nature of the investment and so forth. So we need to have this toolkit available in order to maximize the impact. Great. I want to turn quickly to a couple of questions that come in. It came in, and and one is from a company working to develop some innovative, um, so like renewable energy solutions, sort of repurposing waste heat, um, in some unique ways, and so they're. And then they work primarily in sub-Saharan Africa and are sort of trying to understand what's the best way to connect or get financing from um, from EBRD. And another question that's really getting to the sort of multiplicity of interconnected challenges that we see today. So it's not just climate, but it's economic growth and poverty reduction and achieving the SDGs. And they're quite a complex and interconnected set of challenges, really. And, and they want to get your take on you know, how you look at that set of challenges and look to address them, not probably singly, but um, but, but together. And, and how do you ensure that a focus on one aspect doesn't take away from, you know, a much needed focus in another area? So the first question, how to um, access EBRD, it's, it depends whether, I mean, you can always um, sound, I mean, Look at, I mean, it depends on the country and see if we have, I mean, if we are operating in the country or not. We are not yet operating in Sub-Saharan Africa. It will come, we will start in six countries in 2025, but otherwise uh, you can always uh, send something, in the, I mean, at the EBRD in HQ and then we can see uh, whether, whether it, uh, what we can do about it. On the multiple challenges, it's a very, very complex question, a tough question indeed. I think it's, it's, um, in, Globally, we've been confronted to, um, I mean, succession of crises, which come on top of uh, already pre-existing challenges, such as reaching the SDG, fighting poverty across the world, uh, dealing with the climate crisis. Uh, but the acuteness, I mean, the these challenges. The, these crises are becoming more acute. And on top of that, there has been the impact of COVID and uh, the impact of the war in Ukraine and now the, the, the war in the Middle East. So I think that creates, of course, I mean, very difficult situation. Um, I think it's important to address them, you know, 
in a global manner, not to uh, put aside climate because we have uh, we have um, other crises. Um, keeping the you know the the momentum and, and the long term perspective on climate is absolutely fundamental. And I see that there is no this has been very much discussed in the um, discussion around the World Bank mandate, and I think that there is no opposition between fighting poverty or no trade-off between fighting poverty and uh, fighting climate change because we also know that climate change if it's not addressed it will have an impact on, i mean the strongest impact on the poorest countries so um that all this needs to be addressed in the in the in the at the, at the same time it's very demanding for um, global leaders and uh, international organization but um, but i think at least at ebrd we are very committed to do our best to contribute to um, deal with these challenging challenges um, altogether great well i know that we are basically at the end of our time and i want to ask you one um last sort of question and and that's just maybe something a bit more fun but it's you know coming out of this cop what are you most excited about excited about mm -hmm. um no i think what what was of course the discussion the negotiation it's also always difficult to see what will be the final outcome and so forth so but what i found um exciting it's in all COP, but in this one particularly, is to have so many people coming together from all over the world, very different background, very different, um, um, and I mean, perspective and so forth, but trying to discuss common, I mean, solution for what is a common challenge. And I think the energy coming out of all this panel, discussion, um, and so forth is, is quite amazing. And um, it really, um, you know, help focusing the mind and having, I mean, the different perspective and being discussed sometimes a lot of disagreement, but also I think the common objective shared. And uh, I think that's very, um, that's very positive. And I'm also quite optimistic about, um, you know, the progress made in finding concrete solution. We were talking about uh, renewable and so forth, I think because of the, the technology is also making progress and will help us uh, in in uh, addressing some of these challenges. Wonderful. Well, Odile, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation and sharing your insights and your work. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at alterigo or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. Adva Saldinger was the interviewer for today's episode. It was produced and edited by Naomi Mihara. The series editor is Catherine Cheney. It's hosted by me, Michael Igo.